can't forget your Bible when you're preaching, friends. A little tip. All right. Well, if, um, good morning again. Hi. The submission to governing authorities and, uh, was unpopular. The submission of servants and slaves to masters is even more unpopular. You know where I'm going. This passage may take the cake in unpopularity of uh, Christian wives being, being uh, submissive to husbands and um, not a popular, very countercultural message, as it was probably for different reasons in the ancient Near East, in, in Peter's direct um, context, but we'll talk about that. But I've, never, I've learned to never apologize for God's word. There's blessing in it. It is life itself, and so I'm excited to open, up, open it up together this morning. Um, in fact, I, I think as you'll see, this word actually, contrary to what we might think on first reading at first blush, it was actually not oppressive, but liberating, a really liberating passage for women in the early church in Peter's day. And, and I think it is in ours too, um, for different reasons because our culture's changed, but it's still, it's God's same word. Um, but God's word hits each culture differently, right? So, so speaking of the larger passage that we've been walking through in first Peter in chapters two and three, um, commending and commanding submission to those in authority over us. So first um, to governors and to every human institution, to use Peter's phrase, and then to master, uh, to masters, whether they be bosses or if, there's a, if you're a servant or a slave in a different part of the world or a different time, um, or, or wives to husbands. Karen Jobes, a commentator, she writes this. She writes, how ironic it is that the words that first century slaves and wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. Wives and women in Peter's first audience would have read this as extremely ennobling, empowering, encouraging, whereas um, the same exact word may strike a first 21st century American um, congregation um, of wives and women, especially as limiting, demeaning, oppressive, outdated, patriarchal. Um, but I, 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 I ask you to to give, to give uh, a little bit of space to me as I, as I unpack this, this, this glorious word from, from Peter to the early church, to, to wives. So I've, I've titled this Instructions to Christian Wives and Husbands, so to wives, to husbands, um, all, all because of Jesus. So a little more context here. Um, the Greek moral philosophers uh, of the day in this, Gre- in this Gre- uh, Greco-Roman, which you'll hear that phrase from me a fair amount this, this sermon for context, but in this Greco-Roman culture, the Greek moral philosophers, they, they would not usually, it wasn't typical for them to address uh, slaves or women, uh, but Peter does here. So the very, talk, the very fact that he is addressing slaves, women, along with masters and husbands um, is extremely subversive. It's very subversive in that culture, and it's also really ennobling. Um, a woman in this culture was, was called, everything revolved around, it was the paterfamilias, the, the, the head of the house was the man. And, and his house was like a little state, and then there was state worship going on. So the stability in the home and his being the head in this Roman culture was, was the foundation stone for, for the stability of the state. Um, and so the way that the home ran touched on the way that the state ran. And so a woman was to worship her husband's gods in this Greco-Roman culture. Um, in fact, her friends were to be her husband's friends. In Greco-Roman culture, she was not even really to have her own, her own set of friends. Her conversion to another religion— and an exclusive one, you know, Christianity, Judeo-Christian religion believes in one God, and that there's no, no, there's no worship of no other gods. So it demands exclusive allegiance, and there's no 
worship of, of any other god, least of all Caesar, as, as a god. And so her conversion to an exclusive religion, one forbidding emperor worship, um, or worship of any other gods, as I've said, would have been a huge deal. And it would have threatened sh- uh, to shame the husband. Um, why can't you get hold of your wife? Why is she worshiping this, this different god, especially, especially in a public setting? Um, but if you notice, Peter doesn't address any of these particulars. He upholds the order in the home while reminding men and women, slaves and masters and governing authorities and citizens that ultimate allegiance belongs to Jesus. Um, and so this challenges Peter's culture in one way by elevating women, but it challenges ours in some different ways. I won't name them all. We'll be able to extrapolate on our own some. But it, it challenges ours in part by saying that there is such a thing as a woman, right? That wouldn't have been a challenge in Peter's culture. And that she and that a woman is not a man and vice versa, right? That men and women are different because God made them different for his glory to image him. And that, and that we have different roles to play in marriage, in a family, and in a church family. So I'm getting extremely creative this morning, and my points are wives, husbands, and the Lord, um, just in the order that, that Peter mentions them. He starts out likewise right here in, in 3 verse 1, in 1 Peter 3 verse 1, likewise. Um, J.B. Phillips translation, he says, in the same spirit. So he's, what's he doing there? He's connecting this. We, we take each passage sermon by sermon, but he's connecting this to the larger uh, address in the, in the body of this um, letter to, again, governing authorities, masters, and then husbands and wives. Um, and he's just saying, look, we're, I'm still talking about, it's the same verb, hupotasso. I'm still talking about s- submission and how society in the home as well as outside of the home, um, there, is, there, is a, there are varying roles uh, of authority, and that's important to recognize. And that's, that's locked. The best of that is, is it comes from our Lord himself, who is one God that the Son willingly sub- and gladly submits himself to the Father. He's equal with the Father. He is fully God, as the Father is fully God, but he's not the Father. And the Son and the Spirit is there's a sense in which there's a, a submission of, of, of the Spirit to the Father and the Son from which, from which the Spirit proceeds. Again, equal as fully God in, in dignity, but different in role. And so um, there is a, a, submis- submis- a proper submission in the world helps things run right. Um, and Peter says, be sub- to wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, women, be subject to all men not what he says it's not what he says countercultural in his in his context he does not say this to every man he does not say women be subject to every man tom schreiner puts it very bluntly uh, in the esv study bible he says scripture never says that women so scripture never says not just peter scripture never says that women in general are to be subject to men in general but it does affirm male headship in the home and in the church okay for the good of both institutions, right? And we'll talk much more about not so that men may domineer with their authority, but so that they, so that they may know, understand, honor, and protect, right? And then we'll talk about the first. We'll talk about the role of the woman first. By the way, I'm going to spend more time on the woman just because Peter does. We are going to get to husbands as well, and I should say by by woman I mean typically wife. But so to to put a finer point on it, outside the family and the church family, it's a different story. Um, Peter's not saying that you can't have female prime minister, president, CEO. We can think of folks like Maggie Thatcher in the UK, Angela Merkel, in uh, former prime minister of of Germany, Condoleezza Rice, who's currently the head of the 
um, Hoover and Cincinnati. I'm just, I just picked out a, a, a few winners that, that came, popped into my head. Condi Rice, that was the Secretary of State under George Bush, um, George W. Bush, and then is now the head of the Hoover Institute at Stanford. Run has run a bunch of stuff. Carly Fiorina, I remember she she ran for president. And she was the CEO of, of Hewlett Packard for a while. Um, so so that's great. These women they thrive. They they still still are thriving in these roles. Um, Peter's not speaking to that. He's talking about the home. He's talking about uh, he's talking about the family, and he's talking about the church family. Um, so spiritual authority in the nuclear family and the church family belongs to the man or to the men, pastors or shepherds. Not because they're better. They're not better. Scripture is very clear that God, one, if we go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, makes very clear that God made both men and women in his image. Um, and there's a certain, there's a certain, the fact that he made man and woman together, we image him best as a, as a Trinitarian unity. Um, but we, we are different in role. We're different in role. Um, but men and women are equal in dignity and worth from the start of Scripture all the way through to the beginning of humanity. That's very clear. And that was extremely, Moses wrote that in Genesis, and that was extremely countercultural in the ancient Near East in which he was writing. That, that didn't exist. It was, it was a bombshell of, hey, women are in every way equal in worth and dignity to, to men, but different, complementary. That's, that's what our, our church uses that term, complementary in role so not like this but like this you know and there's a there's a there's a fitting there um as we work together um so and this isn't in the script but um my brother-in-law recently married his niece and he took a line that apparently he just took one line i don't know i wasn't there unfortunately but he uh i gave him all sorts of notes from all sorts of sermons and i heard he took one line and it was from rocky that i've used before in in my brother and and sister-in-law sermon and it's uh, the great philosopher Rocky Balboa, he said, um, um, he said to Adrian, who he wanted to marry in the first Rocky, where he said, you got gaps, and I got gaps, and together, we got less gaps. And so, that's a picture of complementarity. Um, and uh, so, both men and women are different, they're complementary, they're distinct in roles, complementing one another, and together imaging the triune God, as, I, as I've said. Um, this complementarity is part of the glory of a married God. Um, um, of, of, of a married couple in the gospel and, and the beauty in their dance with different roles. Um, so, so just a sub-point as we look at wives, as we consider what Peter says to wives, um, submission as evangelistic and powerful here in 1 Peter. Um, so Paul has a different emphasis. He also says the same sorts of things about men and women equal in dignity and role, but um, equal in, in dignity but different in role. Um, and he also calls for the submission of wives to husbands and each to one another as unto the Lord in Ephesians. Um, but his emphasis is more theological. It's more on Christ and the church. And, and um, Peter's is actually more evangelistic. He wants, what does he want? What's he gunning for? He wants wives to be able to most effectively reach their husbands in this Greco-Roman culture for Jesus. And so he has, he's looking at evangelism and true power. Um, in this culture. So why, what's the reason he gives for wives submitting to their husbands? Does he say because women are lesser? Keep them under your brute men? Yeah. Right. Well, and if you look at the text here, it says, it says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. See, one of the things we have to realize is he's really writing into a context in this early church where a ton of women were coming to the faith. Men too, but a lot of these wives they would come to the faith first. They would be, become a new creature in Christ, and their husband would still be a pagan. 
he would not be born again yet. And so he's writing to these women, and he's not saying, well, just worship your household gods. He's not saying that at all. But he's also not saying, hey, argue with your husband, and that's going to be effective. No, that's not. He doesn't do that either. So he takes a middle, a middle way and a more powerful way. He doesn't say it's because women are lesser. He says, so that. Submit. Why? So that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won. He's looking for them to be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Um, so that they may be won. In other words, wives, your submission is powerful. It is a counterintuitive power play. As with submission in all other forms. Paul talks about this. I mean, Peter talks about this again. The governing authorities. When the, as the church submitted itself to even unjust governing authorities and slaves and servants to unjust masters, what happened is that, that the, eventually over three centuries, four centuries, the Roman Empire ended up becoming, embracing Christianity as its uh, state religion. And over time, uh, as Christians submitted in power and in, and in a desire to, um, to follow their Savior and to see people reached for Christ, that um, slavery ended up disappearing, has always disappeared wherever Christianity has thrived, okay? So um, so it's a counterintuitive power play, as with submission in the other forms, to governing authorities, to, mass, uh, to, to masters and bosses, as ultimately to the Lord. Um, so again, Peter's speaking to women who had, who had converted, who had been born again, but whose husbands had not. Um, um, more powerful for you is, he's basically saying, to, to, um, to try not to convert them with words but to let them observe your conduct, your chaste and respectful conduct. So this is to trust the Lord. Um, again, Schreiner puts it with a point. He says she should not try to pressure him into converting. Um, it's to trust the Lord. It's also a statement about the fact that um, Christianity isn't just bare belief or assent. It's not just mere behavior. It actually changes a person, sometimes more slowly than we might like. That process is called sanctification. But it's a real, when, when you believe on Christ, that he comes to live inside you by his spirit, it's a real change of nature. It changes us. And that change, Peter knew, that change would be, uh, would be seen and would be felt by the husband and would make a deep impact. And many, many husbands in the early church and still today were one uh, in this way to Christ as, as the woman was respectful as she was submissive, as she was kind, he saw a real change in her. So we, this is just a reminder that this is a new creation when we trust in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. Um, it's often frustratingly slow. Again, we admit, but the change is real. Um, so Peter's saying, your husband is watching you. Um, your real change will powerfully work on him. So he says, by your respectful Behavior, and some of these men were not, they did things that were not worthy of respect, especially because even as, as a believer, I do things sometimes, oftentimes, okay? Let's just, let's just put it bluntly. My wife's in the front row that aren't worthy of respect, right? And we're going to look at Abraham in a minute, and he did some things sometimes, even though Sarah submitted to him as, as her master, in a sense. He did things sometimes that not only didn't respect her, uh, and they weren't worthy of respect, that jeopardized her and that jeopardized God's promise to Abraham to bless the world and every family of the earth through him. But he, he, tried, he royally almost screwed things up a couple times. And Sarah still submitted to him, and that was powerful. So sometimes, he's not saying only if your husband's worthy of respect. He's not saying that because a lot of these men, um, they, they wouldn't have been in, in some sense, partly because they weren't yet believers. That's the whole point that Peter's making. And also through your pure conduct, 
uh, which is, again, it was very countercultural in this setting because there was a real double, double standard, in, and there still is to some degree. It's gotten better. But there was a real double, double standard in Greco-Roman culture where men were allowed, Roman men were allowed to have mistresses and be unfaithful. And there wasn't a real, it wasn't expected that in marriage you were, it was, there wasn't a Judeo-Christian understanding of marriage where there was a real um, tete-a-tete, there was a real mutual understanding and a deep connection and it was exclusive. That was, that was expected of the woman to be faithful sexually, but not of the man. And so Peter is saying here, only if, he's not, he's not, he's not saying, hey, wives, only if your husband. He's saying, no, I know what's going on, but by your pure conduct and your respectful conduct, um, win him without a word. So it's powerful, it's evangelistic. Secondly, though, as a subpoint, point, um, submission is beautiful. He says, don't let your adorning be external. Don't let your adorning be external. Now, we want to slip the word in. Uh, believe me, I checked in the Greek, even though I knew I'd already studied this passage before I knew. We want the word only to be in there. Don't let your adorning only be external. Um, but that's not what, or merely external, that's not what Peter says here. But really, um, the sense is what we're looking for. And the meaning is, he's not saying don't, don't adorn yourself at all, ever. He's saying don't let that be the focus. It's a matter of focus. It's a matter of emphasis. Um, focus on inner beauty that will increase and last, not just till you die, forever. It's an eternal investment because we all know that we're getting softer and I'm getting, you know, saggier and flabbier and all that stuff. And uh, especially now in my mid-40s, and that's, I'm just going downhill. I'm just going downhill. But, um, but hopefully, we who look to the Lord are, again, more slowly than we might, and by fits and starts, more than we might like. But we are becoming more and more beautiful on the inside. And that's what God really cares about. We are, he wa- he's going to be with us forever. He's, he's going to um, there's a new creation that's begun in us and that goes out from us and that one day will be perfected, that we'll live in and inhabit fully forever. And that's what we need to be looking to. And that's what Peter is talking about. Um, Peter's speaking, by the way, to women able to dress up in this way suggests wealthy women from upper class, upper strata society had already started soon, uh, into, uh, soon after Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Um, there were people from all different classes that, had, that were composing the church, not just the lower classes. So we have wealthy women here, that's, that's just assumed here, that are worshiping, um, in, are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, the Greek ideal focused on the virtues, not on exterior beauty. And so this sort of counsel from Peter is actually common. It's actually common among uh, Greco-Roman philosophers and writers. Um, also, a woman's use of adornments often associated with, were often associated with um, attempts to deceive or seduce. You see some of that in the Proverbs with the woman that's dressing up, and she's got the silk stuff laid out and all this and that. She goes out in the marketplace, and she's got her perfume on and all that stuff. Um, that's not to say that, is, that always happens when a woman in that culture is dressing up, but that was sort of thought of as the case when a woman who, who is married is doing that in public. Um, and so that was, that was part of the Greco-Roman understanding. So, so in this context, if a woman is a believer, a new believer, and her husband is not yet worshiping Christ as Lord, and she, that's already creating some tension in the home, which is one of the reasons Peter's like, man, to be most effective, win him through your behavior. Through, he, where he can't argue against it. You're, you're, he's, she's serving you more. She is, uh, there's something different about her. There's a gentleness. She's not coming back at you. You know, she's 
not, she's not falling for her rival. There's a strength there. But also imagine she's going to worship, perhaps, um, and she's got a new friend base through the church that aren't friends of her husband's yet because he's not worshiping in this house church that she's going to. And so if she's dressing up to the nines and going out, that's, uh, that could be seen as somewhat suspect, whereas if she's not and she's going out in public modestly, modestly, I mean, she's not, she's not bedraggled and she's presented well, but she's not focused on the exterior, then um, it, it, it would shame him less and there would be less suspicion and it would be known, look, she's going to worship um, the risen Christ with a new, with a new, with a body, with a new group of people um, that are also doing the same sort of thing. So if she dresses modestly, her intentions are plain to worship God in Christ, right? So Peter, again, Peter's helping her. He's trying to protect women and trying to, to help their witness be the most effective to their husbands. Um, outer beauty should not be the emphasis because with a woman, it so often is because beauty is a feminine strength. I know even saying that can be, can be uh, provocative in our culture, but I believe it, and I think that it's, it's scriptural. Um, there's a temptation we have in our flesh to look to our own strength and capacity. And so what does is, what is Peter turn around and say to husbands in a second, which I'll get to? He says, hey, don't use your strength. With so In Greco-Roman culture, husbands had greater social connections. They were more empowered. They were stronger. So he says, don't use any of that to do anything but to honor your wife and to understand her husband. Extremely empowering and challenging. Um, and if you don't, Peter says, then God's not going to hear your prayers. That's how much God cares about you using your strength to benefit her and not to benefit yourself. And also he's saying to women, don't, don't try to control and use what might be your greatest strength in the flesh, your own adorning and your own physical charm to get your way. Rather, submit yourself to the Lord and to your husband and watch God work. Watch God work. Um, now, God, uh, so there, there's a temptation in the flesh to look to our own strength and capacity. Peter says, don't do it. Don't do it. Look to the Lord. Trust him. Submit yourself just like Jesus did to his father. Um, Obviously, God cares about beauty. He he made it. I mean, look at the creation. Look at feminine beauty. Look at masculine. Look at everything around us. Even in a corrupted world, corrupted by sin and death, um, things are beautiful. There is real beauty. And God is beauty itself. All beauty comes from him. He He cares about it. But what he cares more about is that which won't diminish. And Peter has this beautiful phrase in verse 4, um, an imperishable, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And by the way, this is the Bible's light years, as it always is, ahead of the culture. Um, we talk now about objectifying women. This is the opposite of that. This is the opposite of objectifying women. It's, it's seeing that there is a, a, a worth in women and men that is far deeper than skin, skin deep. While not denying the fact that there's real outward beauty, but Peter's saying, don't lay the emphasis on that. Don't try to control. Um, Okay. Usually those who focus on external beauty get less beautiful or uglier on the inside, typically. Um, If your focus is, and I'm not saying if you dress up, don't get me wrong. We all need to look nice, right? but if there's a focus on, especially in our culture, where there's so much focus on presenting your best foot through, let's just say, social media, right? I'm not that savvy when it comes to social media, but I know that kind of one of the points is to keep up with people, but it's also to show the world how great my life is. 
and the, the airbrush things and this and that, and you don't have like people spending hours and hours on social media presenting like, here's what I normally look like or feel. You know, it's like, yeah. and then when you compare that to the way that you normally look or feel, it's like, or, or do, it's like, dang, I guess I must stink. Um, but if there's, it feeds on itself. There's more and more of a focus on appearance. Um, what you're not doing is focusing on on character and on inner beauty, and it's really short-sighted. So you're basically taking a 20 or 40-year approach versus an eternal approach. Um, and so what, what Peter is saying is choose character, choose Christ, choose that imperishable beauty that, um, that comes from the heart, but that comes from a heart renewed and sanctified. God is impressed by that. That, that part, last part of verse 4, which is very, which in God's sight is very precious, this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, that word, that Greek word precious, um, it, it, is, it means of great worth. It's very, it's, it's so, it means so much to God. I love houses with uh, not that much curb appeal, but that when they open up on the inside, they're beautiful and they, they're very inviting. And of course, they have book-lined walls and lamps and cozy cozy reading nooks. You know I love these things, but I love a house that doesn't project itself as much, but then on the inside there's a ton going on. And I love, I love those in part because I love people like that. I love people that are unassuming on the, in the exterior, but there's this capaciousness. There's this, there's this broadness of spirit, this gentleness and this quality uh, and this honesty and integrity on the inside. And you know, um, the Lord loves that too, more than I do. Um, he became that. Isaiah, 700 years before our Savior put footprint, footprints on his, the earth that he created, Isaiah 53, he says, for he, he's prophesying about the coming Messiah. He says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. Okay, how impressive is a young plant? Like a little tiny, it, it almost looks like a weed. Um, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. I mean, you could, like something you could stub your toe on and then you won't even notice it until you're like, ow! Ah, and it's a root. It's a root popping up out of a parched land. That's what the Messiah is going to look like, right? He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him was his character, how great was his worth, so great that it ended up changing, and it's still changing all creation, renewing, began the renewal of all things, um, and then he moves, Peter moves to Sarah, so we know that Sarah, like Genesis 12, 11 tells us that Sarah, even in her older age, was extremely beautiful, so much that when they went down to Egypt, uh, he caught, she caught Pharaoh's eye, but Peter doesn't even mention this, he's far more impressed by how Sarah submitted to Abraham, and think of how she did, I mean, we could go on, but just think about Abram in Ur, this cosmopolitan place that had a zoo, it had a river walk, it had flush toilets, according to one, one um, a commentator that I've read. It was this, it was the place to be, and then God said, hey, leave your family, leave civilization, and just start walking. Leave your clan, leave everything you know, and start walking. And Abraham ended up, and Sarah ended up living in tents the rest of their lives. And, he sa- and, and so he pitches this to Sarah. Can you imagine in their older age? And God says, hey, and, and he says, God says he's going to bless us and he's going he's to make our descendants as numerous as the stars and he's going to bless every family of the earth through us. And Sarah's kind of going, how is this going to happen? We don't have any kids. And so he goes, let's just start. And where, where is this going to be, Abram? Um, don't know. He'll tell us maybe when we get there, right? I mean, so the, ma- the way in which she had to trust and, and submit herself to Abram as her Lord, uh, um, as unto the Lord, was huge. And if she hadn't done that, who knows where we all be? That was a huge, she had a huge part to play, of course, because she had the child of promise, Isaac. 
Um, even, like I said earlier, even when Abram, he didn't do everything right, and the Bible is very clear about the sins of all the patriarchs, the sins of all the prophets, the sins of, um, so he, uh, he presented her in two clutch situations to um, the king, I believe, of the Philistines, and then certainly the king of Egypt, two different times as his sister, and she was his half-sister, which I don't know how, why things worked that way back in the day, but they did, and it worked out for all of us, but um, he basically lied about who she was to save his own skin. He put himself in front of her twice, and he jeopardized in so doing. They both tried to take Sarah for their own, which would have been the end of God's promise. Um, and so, even so, and so he was putting his himself and his own protection and safety in front of his wife. And, um, and she submitted even to that, and in that, God worked. And part of how, it wor- how he worked is he showed us that Abram, though a man of faith, wasn't perfect. And it, that points us to the one who is in our place, Jesus Christ, the one that we need, which is Jesus. So, um, so God used even that. Karen Jobes quotes another commentator. He says, Peter's words to the husbands, which we'll get to right now in, in a second, in the congregations, encourage them to demonstrate an attitude that Abraham failed to demonstrate in the face of suffering. Abraham put Sarah's life in jeopardy in order to save his own life. And he says, and you are her children. And Abraham's the father of faith. And so he's, he's talking to um, a lot of people who are not they're not Jews by, by birth. And he's saying, you are children of Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham was a child of God through faith, and so are you. Faith in the promise of God, which is Jesus Christ. That's how we become spiritual Jews, true Jews, is through, uh, through faith, just as Abraham and Sarah had in the God of promise. And so we're reminded again that the Christian life is one of a new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not one of ethnicity. It's not one of our own performance. It's not one of being a part of a club or, even, or acting in a certain way. It's a rebirth through the one son, Jesus Christ, and receiving his inheritance given to us by faith. Um, and just as a very brief aside, this is an anti-racist uh, passage as well, because um, P- Peter is saying in no uncertain terms that it's the inside of a person in their character that makes the person. It's not the outside trimmings. It's not the way they look on the outside, and that includes skin color, although that's beautiful and made by God too. God cares about beauty. He cares about skin color. He cares about culture. He cares about all that. But what really matters to God, that's why we read, that's why Diana read from 1 Samuel 16 earlier. God cares about the heart. We see the outside and we're swayed by it and we're like, ugh, loser. Or we're like, ooh, that's a beautiful person. I'll be, you know, or that's a powerful person. God isn't, he cuts straight through that to the heart, which is both incredibly encouraging to us that he wants to know our hearts and he does see our hearts. And it's also extremely Bad news, which should drive us to Christ because none of us, if God sees our hearts, we cannot stand because we have black hearts and we need, we have hearts full of sin and we need the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which we can receive through faith in his sin payment and in his righteousness. So again, just very briefly, it is anti, it's anti-racist so, um, and it's very precious to him, the inside. So it's the inside of a person that makes the person, right? And again, that should shoot us to Christ. Because none of us can stand. None of us have the character needed to stand in peace before God. Jesus has it. He offers it to us. Um, But to tweak a line from Martin Luther King Jr., God cares about the content of a man's character, not the color of his skin. Um, And and thirdly, just under women, uh, submission as as brave, right? It's beautiful. It's it's evangelistic and powerful, and it's brave, Um, thirdly. So why does Peter say... As long as you don't fear this scary stuff, what does he say? And you 
in verse 6, are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What, what is this talk about, about this frightening stuff? Why is this here? I'm not sure. But I do know that doing good in Jesus' name as his kids in an environment hostile to Christianity, which the Greco-Roman culture that Paul is writing in, to, in Asia Minor, Upper Turkey, or uh, uh, part of Turkey, w- was ex- more, way more hostile to Christianity than, than our culture is. And our culture is inc- becoming extremely, I mean, excuse, excuse me, um, increasingly hostile. I remember I was, um, I was talking with uh, a woman at Trader Joe's, a young woman, uh, two weeks ago, just as she, she was cashier checking me out, with, um, and and we were talking. Her name is Alex, and anyway, the short of it is that she liked my T-shirt, and it said something about a church, the church outside the walls, or the church has left the building. And I was like, "Yeah, we love Jesus," and she goes, "I love." We kind of looked around like, we were like, he's great. But it was definitely like a sort of, I'm on, I'm, I'm kind of on, in, I'm a rebel in enemy territory here because, you know, I, I'm sure there aren't that many believers that work around her, but she wanted to tell me. And so it was that sense like, man, we're in America, but th- but the culture's turning, you know. But um, so so being a Christ follower requires courage. I think in a, in a household where your husband, uh, in a household where your husband does love the Lord, submitting to him scary in some ways, especially when he's making wrong decisions or you think he's making wrong decisions and not trying to out-argue him. Submitting to him, but as to the Lord, because Christ submitted himself to the Father and the power that came from that was a new creation. Scary. Trusting the Lord. Scary. You're not trying to control. You're trusting the Lord. Um, And certainly, like I said, and think about, again, Sarah and Abraham. Scary. But look at at all the fruit that came from her submission. Um, you know, people will shun us, we'll just say us, ha- hate us, attack us, snub us, ignore us. Satan will attack you. Um, it will be a fight, but we're called to battle. And the question is, are we up for it or, or do we want simply, are we just after an easy, comfortable life? That's not what God's called us to. Um, th- I'll be very brief on, on husbands here. Um, yes, okay, very brief. Um, partly because I already mentioned husbands, let's just look. Peter has one verse for them. Likewise, husbands, live, but it's a trenchant verse, live with your wives in an understanding way, verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I think there are a couple things to say on this. There's more, but I'm going to shortcut it. Um, he says, you know, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I think there's a real emphasis, like I said earlier, just on actually knowing your wife, actually sharing. It's in the language, live with. Live with, and I think certainly in that culture, you could sort of have a separate life. You could be married, but then you're, you're, you had your male friendships and other female friendships were, were okay for the man, but not the woman. A woman, again, was not even allowed really in Greco-Roman culture to have her own set of friends. The church changed that, by the way, extremely subversive and ennobling, while at the same time Peter's saying submit to your husband. Um, but even today, I think, you know, husband there are husbands who can just they can constantly be gone and have their own thing going on and and their goal isn't really like i married this woman to to live with her to share a life with her and he says not only live with her but live with her in an understanding way um so on the live with bit my my preaching professor he was talking about missionaries well sometimes they would sometimes just like leave their wives and their families for decade years or decades and and not to not to judge that because they had their reasons for that and their reasons were christ but he kind of question sometimes he said look i married my wife to be with her taking her with me you know if i'm going on a mission field and so um but not just to live with and to share life with but again peter says in an understanding way know her 
investigate her, study her, um, know her proclivities and her, um, and her likes and her dislikes, pay attention to her. My wife loves it when, you know, whether it's, hey, which, which piece of clothing do I look good in, but also what I like or what food do you think I'm feeling today or what are, what are my, um, you know, what do you think I would choose? That's one of her favorite questions. What do you, and early in our marriage, I was like, why are you quizzing me? Just tell me, you know, but she's constantly saying, like, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And, and obviously, um, on a deeper level as well, but even that says a lot about, am I paying attention? Am I living with you? Am I living with you in an understanding way? Um, knowing that God made you as a compliment to me, you work differently than I do. Um, am I paying attention? Um, so Peter is saying, don't simply coexist. That's not okay. It's not what God made marriage for. Marriage is for deep knowing on a soul and body level deeply know one another. And that was extremely countercultural in the Greco-Roman world. Husbands, he says, you're to lead in this. How few husbands lead in this, whereas the wife is constantly saying, pulling the husband back, I want you to know me. No, he says, Peter's saying in this short, in this short command, husbands are to lead in pursuing their wives and knowing them and studying them and being about them and then, and then taking them to the Lord, uh, taking himself and his wife to the Lord and growing uh, together in light of in light of his um, his presence. So, um, sh- showing honor to the woman. So far, so good. Okay, we're we're okay with that, Peter. Um, but showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Ah, that's that's a that's countercultural to say that today. Um, Paul is probably speaking. Hey, the word of God is always going to it's always going to challenge every culture, but it's going to challenge every culture in different ways. Okay, um, and we let we let we we submit to His Word, and we want His Word to shape our lives, not not um, not first and foremost culture. And as His Word shapes our lives, we pray that we can shape the culture um, influences, right? But but standing on God's Word and submitting to it, because His Word is what saves us. His Word is good. His Word is for us. His Word is life. Um, so Paul, uh, excuse me, I have Paul in my notes here. Peter is probably speaking to social entitlement and empowerment. Again, husbands had more power in their social connections in the Greco-Roman culture, not as much as the case today. Um, he's definitely speaking, though, to their physic- the greater physical strength, typically, okay? There's some strong women out there. But typically, a man is stronger than a woman. If you doubt that, you know, look at the college sports fiascos where dudes will try to, you know, compete against, at, they'll try to be, you know, pose as women and compete against women and just, it's not a good scene. It's not, it's actually, and women are the ones that are going, this is not fair. I've worked my whole life for this Olympic trial or this collegiate thing, and then this dude comes along and he lifts more weights than I do. So, um, so it is countercultural, though, today. Um, but he's definitely speaking to physical strength, and he's saying, just as a woman is not to use her beauty to control, so a man is not to use his strength to, um, to dominate, but rather to, to understand and to honor. Um, and, and Peter says, if, if you don't, if you misuse your strength in that way, not to serve and to honor and to cherish your wife and to draw her closer to Christ, God will shut his ears to your prayers. That's how serious God is about playing. That's, and about a woman in marriage being uh, honored and being understood. And, and, uh, and so that, that is huge. Um, and, and some of some of us may be wondering why God isn't, if we're married, hearing our prayers. It doesn't seem to be, and maybe this maybe this is why. So we might need to 
all of us as husbands probably have some repenting to do here. I know I do. Um, my, my, my dad uh, was getting married, and he had a friend who's a business partner and an old, old friend that he grew up with that was married before he was, a couple years older. And he said to my dad, before, right before my dad got married, he said, Joe, uh, a woman is not a female man. And, uh, which is great advice. Sometimes I can, I can treat Robin like she's just like Diane. She's, but she's not. She's different, and that's glorious. That helps man and woman, male, male and female, husband and wife together in that complementary dance, that role, uh, shows us the glory of God and his triunity better, more fully. Genesis 127, again, it's right there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What's the next line? Male and female, he created them. There's nothing else like this, I can assure you, in ancient Near Eastern literature. So ennobling to men and to women on an equal footing as far as work goes, the differing role. Um, Jesus chose to have an earthly mother but not an earthly father. He chose to be born of a woman, not a man, to feed at her breast for the first year plus of human life. Some of Jesus' closest circle were women. The first people he chose to reveal himself to uh, when, when resurrected, were women. Um, and Peter says here that they are equal wives and women are equal heirs of the grace of life. Equal heirs. This reminds us um, that what we get in Christ is not just a dogma or an assent. It's life itself. It's a new creation. It's a new birth. Um, and it's heirs of the grace of life, right? It's something that's earned. This new life is, excuse me, it's, it's not earned. It's earned by Christ. And it's an inheritance, which means it's given to us through birth. And birth happens as we look to Christ and receive all that he's done for us in his very self, as he said. It's not through our own works. Um, and again, what, what is Peter doing here? He's hooking. Um, let, me, let me just read this as, as I close, um, as I close down. And I went longer than I wanted to. Shocker. Um, if we reject this seemingly parochial bit on wives and husbands, we're really missing let me encourage you, um, let, me, let me argue it to you, that let me place this argument for you. We're really missing the thrust of the entire letter. Again, to quote Karen Jobes, she says, The reader who does not understand Peter's intent in his instruction of slaves, wives, and husbands will not understand the message of 1 Peter. Within this passage, Peter grounds his ethical teaching on the Christian life rightly lived after the example of Christ's suffering. How short-sighted it is to use this passage as if it were a marriage manual simply addressing the relationship between husbands and wives. It's a blueprint, she goes on to say, for an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. When, when God came in the person of Jesus Christ to save the world, he did so submitting himself in his own will and desires. He, glad, he gladly came, but he did, he did so submitting himself equal with the Father to the Father. And um, we can tell that Really what Peter's talking about here is a new creation and a new and an alternate society that sort of like it's it it respects Greco-Roman society and, and Christians were often being accused of of being bad citizens. And so everything Peter says here, there's not a whole lot of detail. And so there's accusations really can't be brought against Christians. And everything here is adding to a very ordered, respectful home and society. Christians were actually began to be known as the best citizens. Um, but it's almost like there was a more subversive element going on because their worship was worship of Christ. And there was a, there was a willing um, mutual uh, submission. And, and it was almost like giving of themselves because that's what Christ has done for us. And Christ in us 
causes us to do that. And it was almost like, like a tree root under concrete that slowly grows. And the power of that over time is that it cracks and displaces the concrete. That's what Christianity does in a neighborhood. That's what Christianity does in a family. That's what Christianity does in culture as, as we seek the Lord. And, and you can tell that, um, just to sort of wrap this, that Peter, um, he's, he's really going back in, this, in these commands to, to humanity as it was intended when he, um, he's really going back to Eden. Because he's really talking about, you know, when women fell, um, when Eve, what, what she was trying to do is she was trying to, um, she was trying, what she began to do after the fall and what she was trying to do in her um, deviation from the Lord and his command was, was to take um, for herself what Adam should have been leading in and, and she was trying to control. And so and in the home, part of the, part of the flesh, part of the, um, the, the consequence of the flesh is that women try to control their husbands in a variety of ways, whether it's through beauty or through, um, through trying to argue with them or whatever. Um, and Peter's saying, die to that die to that. Um, submit yourself to your husband, and um, you're a new creation in Christ. And the husband, he, his tendency in his flesh is going to be to domineer and to dominate through his strength. A woman's strength can be beauty. His strength may be more physical and, and through greater social connections and, and whatever else. And Peter is saying, don't use your strength in that way. Die to that. Use it to know your wife. Use it to ennoble your wife. Use it to honor your wife and to protect your wife. Um, or else God won't hear your prayers. And so he's really taking us back to the garden and saying, Christ, this isn't just sort of me giving advice on marriage. He came to redeem us and to restore our fallen nature and to give us new life um, and to give, us, to give us a new blueprint for a new society. Um, and so, um, as, I, as I said, Jesus submitted himself to the Father in going to the cross. Look at the power that was released as he gave his life up for us, for any who would come to him. As he trusted the Father, look at the the power for a new creation was released. Um, and, and Jesus said himself, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. Um, Jesus used his infinite power. Husbands may have some, some amount of power. Wives have some amount of power in the marriage. Jesus, uh, Peter is saying, uh, look at Jesus. Look how he used his power. He used his infinite power not to crush us but to be crushed for us, not to get his way, but to give himself up as a ransom, as a purchase um, for many. Um, and oh, how he knows us and wants us to know him. And that it, it's possible in marriage and in the church and in the wider society insofar as we um, follow Christ, insofar as we trust Christ, um, as we, insofar as we, we preach Christ crucified and resurrected. So... Um, thank you, Lord. Let me pray. Lord, um, I, uh, I thank you for this word from Peter, um, submission, three, three weeks in a row, to governing authorities, to, to masters and bosses, to, of wives to husbands, and then, of course, instruction and command to husbands as well, and a warning, um, as unto the Lord, and because the Lord is in us and because the Lord went before us and Jesus, you submitted yourself to your father. And we see the power to remake the world came, came out of that submission. And so I pray that you would make us a subversive society in our submission to you and to those that you put in authority over us. Um, not to try to get ours as the world tells us to do. Uh, help me, forgive me, 
Lord, for so often trying to get my own through my own strength and control. So we submit to you again now, and as we come to this table, we are just reminded through um, an unavoidable way, through the bread and the wine, which is your body and your blood, of how you submitted yourself unto death to the Father, and how that acorn has grown up into a tree that is filling the whole earth, and indeed a new creation. So we bless you. We pray all these things in your name. Holy Spirit, would you make them effective? Would you give us faith? Would you give us courage and love? We pray it all in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Okay, well, friends, every, every week we come to the table right after we preach the word, we, we feast on the word, and we remember what Christ has done for us in being torn and having his blood poured out um, for us, but we also, uh, we also come and commune with him in a special way together, because he said, do this as often as you gather in my name. So it's a command, and it's a, spe- it's a command that there's a mystery to it. And the power of Christ by his spirit through our faith as we worship and as we commune together in his name is present at the table, not in a magical way, but in a spiritual and a real way through his spirit and through what he's done. And just because we're obeying his command, it's really powerful. So that's one of the reasons that we take communion when we come together to worship on Sundays. Um, But we also want to encourage you that the Lord is here in in a special way. He's with, when two or three are gathered, he's there among them. He's in you. If you are a new creation in Christ, he's inside of you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll draw you to himself on that last, that day that you breathe your last. But he's, he's with us in a special way during these times of communion. And so I would just encourage you, if you have a physical ailment, if you have a, any sort of need, if, if you want to come and rejoice, if, if you need prayer for anything, come, come during this time after communion. Um, as we continue to worship, come and get prayer. We're going to have after communion a prayer team in the wings and in the back. So avail yourself. This is your body of Christ. Um,